Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to CT of the Acute Abdomen. And the next couple lectures are going to be on GI applications. So we've covered the GU applications. So let's look at GI. Uh, definition again, uh, what is an acute abdomen? A clinical syndrome characterized by the sudden onset of severe abdominal pain requiring emergency medical or surgical treatment. And it's something that when you listen to the description, surely makes the point that CT is ideal. When you look at some numbers, abdominal pain is the most common cause for ER visits overall, and second most common in patients over age 15, with chest pain still being the most common. Abdominal pain accounts for over 8 million of the 119 million ER visits each and every year. Now we all understand that with a good physical examination and lab values, looking at many of the demographics from patient age to sex to past medical history to medications, then looking at the current symptoms, physical exam and lab studies, it's, very, it's often easy to make a specific diagnosis. But in saying that, there are many cases where there are not. And that's really where CT takes over. Now, people have noted that over the past, in this 12-year period here, that CT increased by a factor of four as an ER study. But again, those were significantly different times, and many places didn't have CT in, two, in 1995 in the ER, and by 2007 surely did. But Larson makes the point that forgetting those factors, CT is just highly suited for the ED. Rapid, minimally evasive, high-res imaging, provides and directs patients to further treatment when results are positive, and provides reassurance for negative studies. And one thing I need to emphasize is that a negative study does not mean the patient shouldn't have gotten the study. Rule out appendicitis is normal, you go home. 30% of the time you go to surgery and have a negative appendix. So again, a negative study is a very important finding. You really can consider that to be an unnecessary study. Another article that came out, and this one is a decade ago or more, but I'd like to show two articles in a row that make similar points over a decade, talking about the use of CT uh, in the ER setting, and look at the results in this Rosin article. Reduced the rate of hospital admissions by 24%, more timely surgery in 11%, ruled out significant disorders in 26%, and an alternative diagnosis was provided in 26%. That is indeed impressive. CT performed the ER, increased the physician level of certainty, reducing hospital admission rates by 23.8% and led to more timely intervention. Wow, that is indeed impressive. It makes you wonder how anybody could question the use of CT. But you always got to prove what you're doing is the right thing. This article by Thrall, the objective of the study was to determine how CT affected patients' management and physicians' diagnostic certainty with that management in the ER setting for non-trauma patients. And they looked at a series of patients at Mass General, so you figure, good doc, so you're looking at people who should be able to do physical examinations. Most common diagnoses were renal colic and intestinal obstruction, but look how CT did. Altered the leading diagnosis in 49% of patients, increased physician certainty from 70 to 92%, management plan was changed by CT in 42%, surgery was planned for 79 patients before CT, and a quarter of these patients went home after CT. Look at those numbers. Management plan changed in 42%. 
A quarter of the patients who are scheduled for surgery, instead of going for surgery, they go home. That is indeed impressive patient impact and impressive patient care. And the authors say that the management of patients presenting to the ER with non-traumatic abdominal complaints, CT changes the lead diagnosis, increases certainty, and changes potential management decisions. And they concluded in this large study, performance of a CT in the emergency department for non-traumatic abdominal complaints increased certainty and change management. And although we do worry about the importance of radiation dose and cost-effectiveness, when you look at those numbers, you can see we are being very cost-effective. Another article by Pooler within the last year. Adult patients clinically having suspected appendicitis, CT will identify alternative courses, which often require hospitalization and surgery for treatment. So it's an interesting article, 1,571 patients, and appendicitis was only present in less than a quarter of these patients. 31% had an alternative diagnosis identified by CT. So look at those numbers. In 406 patients in whom a clinical alternative diagnosis were recorded by the treating physician after CT, the final diagnosis was in agreement with the CT in 94% of the time, which means if CT saw something and the radiologist said something, that's what the clinician found, and that's how the patient was managed. In 700-plus patients for whom CT results did not suggest a specific diagnosis, the treating physician did not arrive at a diagnosis in 82% of cases. So if CT doesn't find anything, the likelihood that you will with alternative exams or other studies is indeed going to be unlikely. Now, when you look at this article, remember the patients were scanned for appendicitis, but look at the things we found from gastroenteritis to stone disease, diverticulitis, SBO, things you're well familiar with, and there's a slight difference in men versus women because of women, look at the frequency of benign anexal mass with or without torture, or torsion, as some might say. Some people I know have had uh, torsion, and they say it is torture, but... Um, What's important to recognize is that CT indeed provides important alternative diagnoses. So again, you may be thinking about one thing, but CT is such a global exam, it allows you to arrive at the correct diagnosis. And the conclusion of Pooler was that CT is good at alternative causes, and so when you put everything together, both the appendicitis and the non-appendicitis patients, CT indeed plays an instrumental role in the triage and treatment of these patients. Okay, that's some of the background material. Now, if I want to discuss the acute abdomen GI with you, I could do many things. I could divide things up into four quadrants, and I've done that before. I could talk about different organs or organ systems. I could look at specific diagnoses, be they hepatic abscess, uh, in a patient who had a history of IV drug abuse, or another patient with a, a splenic abscess, or emphyseminous cholecystitis in a diabetic, or a patient with right lower quadrant pain and appendicitis, or a bit more esoteric diagnosis of appendix epiploica with this knot-like mass in the left lower quadrant, there's sigmoid colon. So I could show you those things, but what I think I'll do is let's take a more organized approach. So instead of just picking diagnoses and showing a bunch of 
cool cases, let's really step back. And first we'll look at protocols. We always say that if you do the protocol correctly, the odds are you will be able to make the diagnosis and the acute abdomen, this is true as well. For oral contrast, typically in the ER setting, we need to have rapid throughput. Water is ideal for most cases when we're giving IV contrast. If you're not giving IV, use positive contrast. Um, we do use um, oral contrast if we suspect a perforation. That is positive oral contrast to be able to delineate the perforation or the fistulization. Water alone is typically not going to be good enough. We then use IV contrast and typically omnipeg or visipeg depending on the patient's BUN and creatinine. We like to inject at a 5cc rate if possible, but if you said 3 to 5, that wouldn't be so bad in most cases. I mentioned the uh, use of oral contrast. Here's an example where positive contrast is really good. Patient with pneumoperitoneum and abdominal pain. You can see the contrast leaking around the liver with a fluid fluid level. But when you get down to duodenum, you can really see the actual track and perforation that's present. And you can see it again on these images. Well, we've circled it again on these images. Again, here's the lower aspect where you really can see nicely the contrast extravasation. So, again, positive contrast, if you think in extrav, now you may argue and say, what about peritonitis? Well, dilute um, omnipeg or visipeg is not going to cause peritonitis. That's a good thing about these agents. They do not cause peritonitis. Now, I could also speak to you about looking at bowel with positive contrast. Uh, in a case like Crohn's disease, I think with Crohn's, positive contrast is good, but you will see so much more with water and IV contrast. So here you can see thickened small bowel, you can see prominent vasa recta, you can see it's a pretty long segment of bowel involvement, very nicely shown there, or shown in cross-section, you can see mesenteric nodes present. But again, um, and here you see the length of the bowel involvement. Now, the problem with positive contrast is the interface to the lumen, the interface to vessels, is often obscured. So if I want to look at Crohn's, I'll show this example where I show water in the small bowel, areas of strictures on the MIP, and on the volume rendering, and then being able to show you uh, the prominent vasorecta, the wall enhancement, all things that are critical for looking and defining the activity of disease. And again, if you had positive contrast, you would lose those signs. Now, the other thing about positive contrast, I know whenever I speak to an audience, people are telling me that the ER is kind of pushing them to get things done faster. And there's no doubt, ER docs typically are reimbursed by how many patients they see. And the patients in the uh, ER for radiology for CT awaits three hours, they ain't going to get those bonuses. They need to turn the patients around in two and a half hours. And so this article made the point that no patient with CT negative for acute findings had subsequent findings additionally or a change in diagnosis. And so what they did is eliminated routine oral contrast in the abdomen. Um, and they felt a decreased length of stay and time from ordering study until its performance without compromising uh, patient care. And again, I think that's very true. So we don't need to wait three hours. That's the point. In terms of phases, sometimes we do dual phase. Again, we want to minimize dose. Most of the time in the acute abdomen, we're doing single phase. 
But there are exceptions, like ischemia, for example, would be something I might think about quickly. When we're doing contrast, you can do fixed delay, bolus tracking, or test bolus. I think for the abdomen, bolus tracking is probably best. You pick a point in the aorta, and you can see as we give contrast, the densities are around 500 or so. That's very impressive. We talk about 300 being good for anything. But look how nicely you can see there. And because we scan fast enough, it's easy to do coronals and sagittals after and do them very quickly. And in the protocol we'll use, we like to do thin section CT, 0.75 by 0.5, works very nicely. And once we acquire the information, we put the images in axial, multiplanar, and 3D imaging. Now you can ask why do all that? It's extra work. Well, look at these images, thick and small bowel, Crohn's disease. Here it is again. So you can ask yourself, as I show you the images, how extensive is the disease? Well, you look at this small bowel distally, you can see there's a long segment of bowel thickened, and you can see in this case the coronals are far better than the axials in defining the extent of involvement, but it's really the MIP that gives you that prominent vasorecta that really says, okay, this patient needs aggressive management, this patient has Crohn's, will need more aggressive therapy. And the MIP is really good for showing that vasorecta, but you can go further with volume rendering and now show the wall thickening as well as the prominent vasorecta. Again, you can see why positive contrast would obscure the detail. So water is a wonderful agent, and CT angiography in many of these cases is really spectacularly helpful. Now, in the acute abdomen setting, one of the most common questions is, is there bowel obstruction? And if so, why? And if so, what do I need to do? Causes, most common adhesions, IBD, small bowel tumors, and hernias. Hernias used to be the most common, but here's the numbers at this point. 75% are adhesions, 5% are neoplasms. Now, when we're sent a patient or we're evaluating a patient for small bowel obstruction, what are we thinking about answering? Well, the simplest thing is, does a patient have small bowel obstruction, yes or no? And if there is obstruction, is the symptoms related to this? And then there is obstruction, is it partial or is it complete obstruction? Because we know that the decisions as to medical versus surgical management are totally dependent on that last question, partial versus total obstruction. We talk about different classifications, simple versus complicated SBO, where complicated is the ones which you think about surgery, incarcerated obstruction, strangulation. We talk about the delay in surgery or trying to avoid delay in surgery, where radiology needs to be very adamant and very quick on top of this processes. If surgery is delayed over one day, mortality is up to 25% versus less than 8% if done just hours earlier. And once strangulation occurs, it's about 100% fatal. So you gotta diagnose early if you want good outcomes. So what are we looking at? In small bowel, we're looking at the wall of the bowel over three millimeters. We look for abnormal enhancement, be it decreased or increased. Uh, with um, ischemic bowel, for example, you can have either depending if it's venous or arterial type ischemia. We look for position of the bowel. The possibility of malrotation is always considered. We look at the mesenteric fat. Well, what other things can we say? If you do a cross-sectional dimensional measurement, if small bowel loop is over 2.5 centimeters, then it's dilated. 
We talk about a small bowel feces sign, which is a sign where you see air bubbles and content proximal to the site of obstruction. And that's a very good uh, finding. When I see this feces sign, I follow things to the transition. We talk about wall thickening. We talk about transition in small bowel loop size. And so here's an example, dilated small bowel proximally. You see the second loop filled with stool. It looks like a colonic loop at small bowel. You follow it upward to the right upper quadrant. And this patient, you can see, has a band right there. Look at that transition point. Look at the adhesions, okay? This was due to adhesions. A very simple diagnosis. This case, patients obstructed abdominal pain. What's going on? Well, the first thing you notice is all the loops are to the left side. Whenever I see all the loops in one place, I worry about internal hernia or volvulus. Look at the lack of enhancement of those bowel loops. Okay, that's very, very important. Here's a few more views of that showing you the loop of bowel going into this um, left upper quadrant. And just compare the loops on the left side and the right side. You can see this decreased enhancement. This is ischemic bowel with an internal hernia. And here it is the twist very nicely seen. And as you look at the images, just put in your mind this picture. A rapid transition could be short, could be long segment, can be incidental in mesentery, small bowel. Uh, sometimes in the mesentery or so you'll see uh, incidental changes, but at uh, times it can be a difficult diagnosis. But here's just a very nice example of an internal hernia, very, very nicely shown. Now, internal hernias can be due to obstruction. It can be due in this, in this patient. You can see the proximal bowel on the right is distended. There's ascites near the bowel. That's always a treacherous sign to me. And you can see that... Um, we got a few more images there. And here's the coronal, pretty impressive dilated bowel. Uh, you can see some of the transitions in the right lower quadrant, but you can see it kind of marches along looking for that point of obstruction. So that works out very, very nicely in this scenario. And here's a look at the vessels. We talk about bowel loop obstruction. We often talk about closed loop obstruction typically caused by adhesive bands or internal or external hernia. But bands is what I think about most now. Closed loop can lead to a volvulus, can lead to uh, impairment of venous outflow. Uh, and so this patient can then develop ischemia. Classic appearances, C or U-shaped extended loops with the mesenteric vessels converging to the site of obstruction. And again, often it's much easier on the coronal views. Here's a patient, dilated bowel. Could it be a hernia? Was missed initially. Yep, there's the hernia. It's in the inguinal ring. So if you're not trained to look for transitions, you will miss things. And here's just a great example of such a transition. And here it is on the sagittal view, I believe. Oh, you see that in a moment. So um, there it is in the coronal perspective. When we talk about bowel obstruction, you have to be very flexible and look at the images. Here's obstruction, but look at its cause. It's not adhesions. It's by the ligament of trites. It's a large mass. This was a duodenal adenocarcinoma that parked itself over there. And you can see the obstruction of the duodenum by the tumor. Could this be a primary duodenal cancer? I guess it could be, but the epicenter is more pancreatic. But you can see nicely in those images or these images the ability to define position of involvement, this patient eventually had radiation therapy in a stent. This patient would not be operable. Now what else? We talk about CT enterography and Crohn's disease. 
That's a really interesting topic, but how about we uh, take, say, a 10-minute break, and then we'll come back and we'll discuss it. Thanks very much.